Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. So these authors would argue that much of what evangelicals today believe to be the plain teaching of scripture is actually a product of historical attempts to justify racism, sexism, nationalism, capitalism, and the oppressive status quo. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I have a great guest for you today, Neil Shenvey. Many of you are already familiar with Neil's work as he interacts with ideas like critical theory, critical race theory. Today, we're going to talk about deconstruction. We've done a lot of podcasts on deconstruction on this channel, and I really wanted to talk to Neil about this because in my mind, we have sort of two camps when it comes to defining what deconstruction is. So I have defined it somewhere along the lines of like a systematic dismantling of a Christian's belief that they grew up in the church. They sort of systematically dismantle those beliefs, very often rejecting a lot of those beliefs, sometimes walking into a more progressive type of Christianity, and others walk away from the faith altogether. Some come back, some come back to a broader sense of spirituality. But I think we always use this term and we don't really drill down into what we mean because there's another group that sort of sees deconstruction as a positive thing. Maybe this is something Christians should do. Should we deconstruct our faith? So we're going to talk about all those things today with Neil Shenvey. Neil, of course, uh, attended Princeton University, actually got saved while he was attending Berkeley, and he has his PhD in theoretical chemistry, and he's been on the podcast before to share his story, so definitely go back in the archives to look at that one. But Neil, so glad to have have you back. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So you, I, I, I noticed some tweets that you had been um, putting out there recently, and it got me really thinking more about deconstruction, how we're defining that. And so a lot of people are talking about deconstruction. This is something that seems to all of the sudden just be this big movement that we're seeing, and it's all in the context of faith. I kind of gave my little definition of what I think about when I'm thinking of the word deconstruction. I want to know how you define the word deconstruction, because we always have to 
I think we have to define our terms before we just start talking about things. And that that's something you talk about a lot in your work as well. So how do you define deconstruction? Yes, absolutely. Define your terms. So uh, it's a very slippery term, going back to Derrida, I guess. And even he didn't define it very clearly, a lot of scholars will say. Uh, and so I think you're right. When progressive Christians have adopted that term in the last 10 years, 20 years, say, they've meant systematically dismantling the sort of core beliefs of their faith or, or, or you know, thinking through which of those beliefs about God, Jesus, the Bible are even true. Uh, so, and I, and so when people have begun using that term deconstruction as evangelicals in the last few weeks, I'd say, mm -hmm. and a lot of people are nervous. They're saying, wait, you can't deconstruct your faith. That's very dangerous. Well, in response to these evangelicals, we'll say, no, 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 you're misunderstanding us because, you know, deconstruction is what the reformers did. They also deconstructed. We're just doing that. So, okay, so what are they really trying to do as evangelicals? I think they, in the broadest sense, they're trying to separate authentic Christianity from the later cultural accretions, these mm -hmm. ideas that came up from our culture. And that's not really necessarily a bad thing. I think we should all try to distinguish what are real Christian beliefs from the Bible uh, from what are just cultural additions that we've we've got tangled up in as Americans, for example. But so I think broadly, both progressive Christians and and evangelicals who are deconstructing are trying to separate authentic Christianity from later cultural beliefs. Now, but here's the big question. How do we decide what is authentic from mm. what's merely cultural? And then the reformers said, well, the Bible's our ultimate authority. We turn to the Bible to determine what real Christianity is. I see something very different going on with the evangelical deconstruction project. That's why I'm concerned. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to talk to you because I've listened to so many deconstruction stories and I've read so much uh, about it, and I've even immersed myself in the social media of the deconstruction movement, and I'm thinking, wait, this, this is not a good thing. Let's not tell people to deconstruct. And then it just got me thinking, well, maybe we're all meaning something different mm -hmm. by that word than, than what we're, you know, when we're talking about it. So I think, like you mentioned, when certain evangelicals will say, hey, we should deconstruct all the bad stuff, we should deconstruct the things that are false or the things that maybe are just culturally caught, um, we would say, yeah, we, wanted, we want to always be reforming our views, mm -hmm. right? We want to always make sure that what we believe lines up with the Bible. We want to make sure it lines up with reality. But that isn't, in my view, necessarily deconstruction. Sure. That's more like reformation or something right. along those yeah. lines, which, so I think when, and we were talking about this before, when progressives use the term deconstruction, they tend to mean something different than evangelicals. Have you noticed that same phenomenon? Yeah, definitely. Although I would say that they, they're also trying to determine what authentic Christianity looks like. Mm. But again, what's their criteria? What are you using to figure out what real Christianity looks like? And I think in both cases, we're going to see they're not really going back to scripture. So the mm. progressives maybe are looking for their, their spiritual intuition, their hearts, their feelings tell them what real Christianity is or ought to be. And I think that uh, evangelical deconstructionists are doing something else also. They're not really going back to scripture. They're doing. They're looking for another source for informing them what is real Christianity. Okay, interesting. So, uh, one sort of concrete defin, or I should say, not definition, but one concrete phrase that's been put out there is something called the Evangelical Deconstruction Project. So, I want to talk about that. Where did that phrase come from? What does it mean? 
Okay, so that phrase, the Evangelical Deconstruction Project, uh, came from an article written by Professor David Gushy, uh, and the title was The Deconstruction of American Evangelicalism. So a lot of the social media chatter around evangelical deconstruction, I think, is drawing on that article. Now, he is a self-affirming progressive evangelical, and he made waves in 2014 when he became LGBT-affirming. So that's mm. kind of where he is theologically. And in that article, he says a number of professing Christian scholars uh, are deconstructing the quote-unquote quote intellectual underpinnings of evangelicalism. And he names Kristen Cobas Dumay, the author of Jesus and John Wayne, Beth Allison Barr, the author of Making a Biblical Womanhood, Jamar Tisby, Color of Compromise, Jacob Allen Cook, who authored a Worldview Theory, Whiteness, and the Future of Evangelical Faith, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, who wrote Taking America Back for God, Robert Jones, who wrote White Too Long, and Anthea Butler, who wrote White Evangelical Racism. So he says all those scholars are engaged in this evangelical deconstruction project. Now, according to Gushy, what does that mean? Well, he says these books show in various ways that, quote, white evangelicalism is characterized by patriarchy, toxic masculinity, authoritarianism, nationalism, anti-gay sentiment, Islamophobia, and indifference to black people's lives and rights. And that, quote, white Christianism wants, quote, to drive non-Christians, non-whites, non-natives, and non-males back into subordination, et cetera, et cetera. Now, here's the funny thing. Uh, when that article was published by Gashi, it was enthusiastically praised and endorsed by every single one of those authors. Mm -hmm. So you can't say, what well, that's not our label. We're not, that's not what we mean. Well, at least these authors said, yes, it's exactly what we're doing. He's not, so we can't claim that he's misrepresenting or misinterpreting their work. They're happy to say that that's, yes, that's our, uh, there are goals. Mm -hmm. Now here's a really fascinating coincidence. At around the same time and totally independently of Gushy, I didn't read this article until a month later. Well, I wrote an article for the journal Icon, and it was entitled Sociology as Theology, the Deconstruction of Power in Post-Evangelical Scholarship. Mm. I named every single one of those authors minus Cook and talked about how they are, quote, sowing the seeds of a deconstruction that goes far deeper than race, gender, and politics. So now look, you have two people, David Gushy and, and me one advocate and one critic who are independently recognizing that these books are uh, share a common deconstructive goal. And mm. that's pretty significant, I think. Okay, so I think what we're seeing emerge here is an intersection between what we might have thought to be a more general sense of the word deconstruction, where it's just people maybe losing their faith or they're denying core tenets of historic Christianity. But we're seeing an intersection of of deconstruction and maybe critical theory? Would, would, would that be fair to say? So we're seeing some of these ideas of where everything's sort of um, a power play, any, any claim to truth is really a power grab. We're, I'm seeing those things come together because it seemed like before this phrase evangelical deconstruction project emerged, I was seeing, okay, you might have a story over here where somebody deconstructed because they'd been through some abuse and maybe they, mm -hmm. they're they not comfortable with biblical morality. But then over here, you, you have someone who has deconstructed and it's just filled with all of those buzzwords like whiteness, white fragility, and all of these things. But it's like it's all coming together now under this umbrella of evangelical deconstruction project to where I almost never now see a post about deconstruction or a story that someone's telling of their deconstruction where it's not really linked with 
critical theory mm-hmm. and some of that that um, challenge of that power and the truth claims and, and and that sort of thing. So I wonder if you could expand on that. Like, what is the essence of this evangelical deconstruction project? Sure. So the way that Gushi describes it, and I describe it in my article, and if you read all these books independently, I think that they would all agree that here's the essence of their claim. They 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 argue that evangelicalism, or maybe white evangelicalism, has been foundationally shaped by oppressive ideologies like white supremacy, patriarchy, Christian nationalism, homophobia, and that these ideologies were then cloaked in theological language and given theological justifications. So these authors would argue that much of what evangelicals today believe to be the plain teaching of scripture is actually a product of historical attempts to justify racism, sexism, nationalism, capitalism, and the oppressive status quo. So authentic Christianity to them requires us to unearth the ways that these ideologies have perverted our faith and then to dismantle these beliefs that are used to justify this oppressive behavior. So that's their project. And that's what I think unites all of these books and why, again, if you look on social media, look at their own writings, they will often cite one another and say, we're all sort of doing the same thing. Mm. Uh, So I think that's a fair way to describe their project and even in their own works, they write that. Yeah, and I just want to give people a concrete example of this. Now, back when this happened, I didn't understand what was happening. Mm. I do now, of course, that I've I've seen this evangelical deconstruction project emerge. But a co- about a few years ago, three or four years ago, I wrote an article comparing the beliefs of progressive Christians with the beliefs of atheists. And this was published on the Gospel Coalition. And I, I, I think I pointed out three things about their view of the Bible, view of the problem of suffering, and maybe something else, cultural morality or something. And there wasn't anything in the article about racism or race Mm -hmm. or anything like that. But what was very interesting was that this was back when Rachel Held Evans was alive, and she she tweeted about the article and then posted a gif or a meme or something, basically implying that that the the article was fueled by white nationalism. Mm -hmm. And I was so confused. I was, I remember thinking, what? But now, of course, that I'm seeing all these things come together, I know why that that claim was made. But I really want to help our viewers and our listeners to understand how those connections are being made. So Neil, like when when somebody from the Evangelical Deconstruction Project starts talking about things like the penal substitutionary atonement being in the category of oppression or being maybe a product of white supremacy or something mm-hmm. like that, help us understand why are they thinking that and how are they coming to that conclusion? So there are two, I think, big categories you have to understand. So one is intersectionality. This is the idea that all these oppressions are interlocking. So you can't treat, this is right out of critical theory, race theory literature, but you can't treat just racism by itself without treating sexism, homophobia, ableism, and classism. And so that's why when they see any one oppression, they look for others too. They, they say, mm-hmm. how are these beliefs all cohering and, play, and, and reinforcing one another? That's one part. The other part is that a lot of this deconstruction, and it kind of goes back to the work of Foucault, uh, who's a famous uh, postmodern philosopher, but they look underneath truth claims to see bids for power. Mm-hmm. So, so what they what they see is they see that uh, the the uh, people with power in society, the people who are at the top of society, who have the money and the resources, they have dictated society's uh, what's, what Foucault called their regime, our regime of truth. He det- they determine what's 
treated as true and good and normal and exclude the other, whether it's women or people of color or uh, people in the LGBTQ community. And so they look for ways in which ideas have otherized certain groups. Now, the point then is if they see an article writing about how penal substitutionary atonement is true, they will see that through the lens of well, who's getting power from this. Oh, mm. that claim is being used to justify why the gospel is primarily about our sin and not about political liberation. See, that doctrine is being used to explain why the church shouldn't get its hands dirty with sort of worldly politics. So that's really a way to mask the church's indifference towards racial justice, and that makes it part of racism. Mm. That's how they get from claim A to claim B. So I thought I was just talking about why the Bible affirms penal substitutory atonement, but it turns out the subtext was, I'm defending the white male status quo. That's how they go from point A to point. Yes, and and that's going to intersect also with doctrines like egalitarianism mm -hmm. and complementarianism, the role of women in church leadership and teaching. Um, another sort of just practical example of how this goes down, and I know people watching and listening have experienced similar stories, but a few years ago, I tweeted something. It's back when I was on Twitter. Um, like like we talked about before, my mental health is a lot better now that I'm not on Twitter. You got to come back, though. It's, you know, it's it's twice as bad as you remember it. Oh, good, good. That, that's a good uh, uh, good encouragement there to come back. But uh, yeah, so years ago, I posted something about uh, complementarianism, about um, I think it had to do with me criticizing some of what I was seeing in media, and I'm still very concerned about, where it seems like it's become completely normalized to see a 100-pound female go hand-to-hand -hand combat with mm -hmm. a 200-pound Navy SEAL, and it's a fair fight. I mean, it's per it's supposed to be look like a fair fight, or even more common now, I think, is for two men to be fighting, but it's not a real fight till the woman comes and fights the man. And it's like, <laughs> oh, he's she's really gonna, like, he's really gonna have a challenge now, which of course is, in reality, ridiculous. The average mm -hmm. woman is not as strong as the average man. And we used to have values like you shouldn't hit a girl and things like mm -hmm. that. So I don't know. I tweet, I got myself in a big hot mess tweeting about that a few years ago. And what was so interesting is these, these men came on and they were telling me that I was self-oppressed or that I had internalized, internalized oppression. oppression. Yes. And I remember back, of course, back then being like, what just happened? <laughs> I understand what happened now. Um, of course, I also thought it was very ironic that there were two men over the course of three days trying to let me on how oppressed I am, and I just need to believe what they say. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. But um, I'm bringing in these practical examples because I want people to grasp this, uh, that that this is something that's all interconnected. You, you really can't separate maybe what, what might be a race discussion from a male-female discussion to a gender sexuality discussion. <clears throat> all of that sort of tied together under this umbrella. Would, would that be fair to say? Oh, yeah. And like I said, critical race theory, one of their core tenets is intersectionality. It's really like one of their foundational ideas is that you cannot look at just race or just sex or just physical ability or just class alone. Um, yeah. You can find that in, again, I can cite dozens of sources that will say that. Yeah. And we've really absorbed that into our consciousness where we try to, we don't try to keep the discussion separate. We see all of these discussions taking place within a uh, context that uh, values certain White, straight white males and devalues other people. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some books that are all a part of this evangelical deconstruction project. Things like, uh, did you mention biblical the 
uh, the making of biblical womanhood. The making of biblical womanhood. Mm-hmm. Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah. Uh, the color of compromise. Is that right? right? Taking and, and America few, back for God and a few others. Yeah. Right. And so these are all books that people have written into me saying, "Hey, do you do you have an opinion on this book?" And I always mm-hmm. send them to your reviews on those books. But what I hope to help people understand is how all of those things are connected. These are all kind of messaging the same. These are all on the same. Uh, they're they're all trying to accomplish the same goal. They're they're accomplishing the same message. So you mentioned some things already. Are there any other approaches that these books share that we need to be aware of? Yes, yeah, so they're you know they're different books. So they don't. I don't want to sell them short. Uh, they should be read independently. But they yes. do share this. Uh, I think overall project and also the way that they parse, review history and sociology are, are similar. So here's how the basic approach works in the books. Step one: they identify a problem. They either see a problem in history or in contemporary politics, and it could be slavery or Jim Crow or sex abuse scandals within the church or something else. That's step one. Step two, they show how the church either actively endorsed or passively allowed these injustices. That's step two. Then step three, they conclude that hundreds of years of participation in white supremacy, patriarchy, and nationalism have warped white evangelical theology so that it needs to be fundamentally reimagined. Now, when we read these books, we can often agree with steps one and two. We can, we can and should absolutely grieve and lament these past and present evils, but then there's a sudden leap to step three, and that's the big problem. You can't move from saying, look at how this belief was used to justify a great evil, to saying, therefore, this belief is false. That reasoning is just logically invalid, because almost any belief, even a good and true belief, can be used to justify evil. And here's an example that I use. Belief in the divinity of Jesus, that he's God himself in the flesh, that's been used to persecute non-Christians in the past, right? It certainly has. Now, I could write an entire book documenting historical evidence that per- Christians have persecuted non-Christians because of their beliefs about Jesus' divinity. Now, does it follow then that Jesus is not divine? Well, not remotely. That's just invalid reasoning. So we can't use descriptive facts about history or sociology to prove some prescriptive theological point. That's what all of these books do. And if you notice, actually, in these books, there's almost no exegesis at all. There's no reference to scripture. It's all about history and sociology, but the conclusions are theological. And and that's why I think it's inappropriate to compare evangelical deconstruction to the Reformation, because the Reformers wanted us to re-examine all our beliefs in light of scripture. They wanted to reform their beliefs to the Bible. And in contrast, the Evangelical Deconstruction Project wants us to re-examine our beliefs in light of history and sociology. Mm-hmm. They want us to reform our beliefs to a, and they, their, their goal then is this end vision shaped by politics or gender or liberation. Those are two qualitatively different goals. You know, scripture on the one hand versus again, this sort of idea of liberation, whether it's you know, uh, racism or sexism or uh, nationalism that are corrupting our faith, we're going to get rid of that. And that's our end goal. Now, you've pointed this out before that this type of thinking is really like a Kafka trap, right? Which is sort of when you, your denial of something is evidence of, that you're guilty of it, essentially. Is that mm-hmm. is that a fair way to say what a Kafka trap is? Yeah. So it's like, I, I thought of a great example. So I could say this. I say, okay, Lisa, I have this theory. My, my theory is that you're a vampire. And you're denying being a vampire to conceal your dark, dark powers. Now, what are your options? You can you can either admit, though, yes, you're right, I am a vampire. Or you could deny that you're a vampire. 
and therefore prove that you're a vampire because it's exactly what I said a vampire would say. You're denying <laughs> your true dark, dark powers in order to hide the, your vampire nature. So that's sort of what's going on in these books. So if you say, well, no, actually, uh, I, you know, I think that complementarianism, the idea that men and women are equal in value but have different roles, I think that's actually true and biblical. They'll say, yeah, sure. We already explained how white men justify their oppression by appealing to the plain teaching of scripture mm -hmm. and that you're providing just a, a thinly veiled justification for your power. So for example, yeah. uh, Beth Allison Barr writes in her book, complementarianism is patriarchy and patriarchy is about power. Neither have ever been about Jesus. And Thea Butler writes, evangelicalism is not simply a religious group at all. It's a nationalistic political movement whose purpose is to support the hegemony, the power of white Christian men over and against the flourishing of others. And Dumay writes, the battle over inerrancy was part of a proxy fight over gender. Inerrancy mattered because of its connection to cultural and political issues like abortion and same-sex marriage. So all these people are saying underneath the claim about what the Bible says is the actual motivation. So if you just say, well, wait a minute, the Bible says, they say, I see exactly. We told you you would go back to the Bible when you're really just trying to cover up your obsession with power. So there's no real response to that, unfortunately. Yeah, and I experience this quite often on uh, my just Facebook page with some of the, the comments that I receive. I'm actually trying to find one of them because <laughs> it really illustrates this so perfectly. And if I can't find it here, I'm going to have to just paraphrase it. But someone had come on my Facebook after I had um, – oh, here it is. Okay. So – and I think this – you're going to – I think you're going to really see – how this is like it's in the wild, right? This yeah. it's mm -hmm. we can talk about critical theory, we can talk about deconstruction, all these things on an academic level, but really it's just it's in the wild, it's in the yeah. culture, it's in the air we breathe. And so I received this comment, which man, this th I saved it because it was such a perfect example of everything you're just talking mm -hmm. about. So the comment said this to me spouting white male God theology will not make the white males who think themselves God and indoctrinated you into their cult see you as a white male. You will still be lesser to them, just as the wives of enslavers did all the same evil as their land and chattel-owning husbands, but without the power or title. And, and I, I suppose this was on a post where I was critiquing Richard Rohr, and she said, Richard Rohr, on the other hand, sees women um, and like he sees you, which is as Christ sees women women and all non-white males equal. And mm. then she says, it will be glorious days indeed when you value the word of Christ over you more than the words of the white men you're so eager to play ball with, but among whom you'll only ever be the pretty water girl capable of regurgitating their vomit. Wow. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny on Twitter. I, uh, I, I'm oftentimes when I write about anything, People will tell tell me that, well, oh, you're just a white male. And I have to just keep saying I'm not white, I'm not white, I'm not white, because their assumption is, and it doesn't really phase them because they say, well, you're white adjacent then. Yes. You know, you're or you're currying favor with white power. Yeah. And so there's no response to that. They're they're not asking, is this claim true? They're asking, who's who does whom does it serve? You know, Queen mm. Bono, who's benefiting from his claim? And it's always the people with power. So whether or not I think it's true, whether or not it's in the Bible, it's all a function of trying to preserve white, straight, male power and privilege. Mm. 
Okay. Well, we're getting into it on this episode. <laughs> so um, let's talk about we, – we're talking about evangelical deconstruction progress. Um, project. So I think it's really important for us to be very clear on what the word evangelical means. Because for a lot of people, I think you say the word evangelical and all they see is a MAGA hat. Other <laughs> yeah. people, you know, you say evangelical and they're thinking something completely different. So what is evangelicalism? And um, do you think that it's entangled with maybe like uh, conservative politics or something like that? Sure. So I think you know scholars have debated the question of what is an evangelical or, or, or what is evangelicalism for for decades, it's, and it's complicated. It's not there's no easy answer, and so I think the best thing we can do is to distinguish between two ways to define evangelicals or evangelicalism. The first is as a socio political group, and the second is as a set of beliefs. So uh, if you're talking about that first definition, defining evangelicalism as a socio political group. Uh, well, we know some things about this vaguely defined broad group called evangelicalism from polls based on people's self-identification. You say, you just ask them, are you an evangelical? And if they say yes, they're an evangelical. Well, if you categorize people that way, then yes, evangelicals, self-identified, uh, are very conservative. And so they, uh, th those who voted in the 2016-2020 election, 80% voted for Donald Trump in the last, you know, I don't know how many elections They've always voted heavily Republican. And then there are other polls you can run, some of which are very shocking about those evangelicals. So for example, even today in 2021, about 20% of white evangelicals are opposed to interracial marriage. That always shocks me. It always shocks all my listeners, but it's just the data. And though I, look, I'm half Indian. I, I've never run into personally a white evangelical who was opposed to interracial marriage. Yeah. And, but that's what the data say. And so we have to recognize, okay, there are people out there who will say, I'm an evangelical and are opposed to interracial marriage, even today. And that should provoke some soul searching on our parts. We'd say, wait a minute, mm -hmm. where are they getting this idea? Have we uh, somehow gotten evangelicalism mixed up with conservative politics, with racism, with sexism? You know, let's, let's be honest about that and ask, how can we make sure that we're believing what is actually true and biblical? Um, but, but, the other side of that is that there's a big difference between evangelicalism as a, as a socio-political group and evangelical theology. Mm. There are some other surveys. So for example, uh, a 2021 Barna survey found that 28% of self-identified evangelicals, right? 28% of Americans do identify, if you ask them, as an evangelical, okay? Of that self-identified group, about one in four people, well, of that group, 65% say, quote, determining moral truth is up to each individual. There are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. And same group, 61% of that group say, a person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. Okay, now here's another, another survey. A Ligonier State of the Theology survey found uh, a few, like, two years ago that 26% of self-identified evangelicals strongly agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And 38% strongly agreed that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now think <laughs> about those all those four statements. We're talking about a majority of evangelicals affirming statements that are just, they're not Christian statements. They're not Christian. If you believe Jesus is the first created being, you're not a Christian, just period. Yeah. 
let alone an evangelical Christian, how we define that. So my point here is that we should keep separate that there is some social, this broad social group that you can say broad things about, like they're conservative, uh, they tend to be patriotic. They, so that's fine. But then something separate is evangelical theology. And that first group often doesn't pass basic tests for <laughs> basic Christian theology, let alone evangelical theology. So what I'd want to approach this as this, if you want to critique that cultural movement, that's fine. That's fine. You want to distance your, your own beliefs, your own theology from that, that movement, that's fine. Uh, if you want to critique evangelical theological claims, like we believe in, uh, evangelicals generally believe the Bible is uh, inspired, infallible, inerrant. If you want to critique that, go ahead and do it. But don't confuse the two. Don't say that because I am critiquing people that voted for Donald Trump, therefore I am simultaneously critiquing inerrancy. No, those are two different different statements, right? So mm -hmm. uh, as long as we're separate, they're separate in our mind, then I don't really mind people critiquing either one or the other, but just don't confuse the two. And I think mm -hmm. what happens is people begin by critiquing this movement politically, but end up that bleeds into how they think about questions mm -hmm. about inerrancy, the atonement, who Jesus is, how many paths there are to God. And again, that's very dangerous because I believe the Bible does teach, I'm an, I'm an evangelical. I believe the Bible does teach what we would call today evangelical theology. And we should keep that separate from how, say, evangelicals vote. Mm. Okay, that's really helpful. And that's a good distinction. So the books we've been talking about, can we apply their methodology uh, like narrowly just to a few particular unbiblical practices or doctrines, or is it something that we uh, have to apply, bro uh, apply more broadly? And, and if we do, then why is that? Yeah, I think the short answer is no, we can't apply these critiques narrowly because number one, the books don't intend you to. They will, they will say themselves that, that gender, race, and class and are all entangled and, and interpenetrating. So you can't just say, oh, we're just going to accept their treatment of race, but not their treatment of, say, gender or other issues. You can't. They will say that. That's why you have these long strings of adjectives like sexist, racist, classist, homophobic, transphobic, nationalist, etc. Because all of those things are ways in which you know, white evangelicals have, have protected their own power and privilege. Mm -hmm. um, they really are aiming at a broader target. So, for example, here in, in uh, Robert Jones's book, White Too Long, here's one of his rhetorical questions. He says this, what if conceptions of marriage and family, a biblical inerrancy, or even the concept of having a personal relationship with Jesus developed as they did because they were useful tools for reinforcing white dominance. Mm. So he's asking us to reimagine, rethink our ideas of marriage and family, inerrancy, and even having a personal relationship with Jesus on the basis of how evangelicals perpetuated racism and the status, the racial status quo. Uh, in Jesus and John Wayne, uh, Christian Dumay writes this, Quote, patriarchal power began to define the boundaries of the evangelical movement itself. And then she describes those boundaries as including complementarianism, the prohibition of homosexuality, the existence of hell, and substitutionary atonement. For her, that defines the evangelical movement. And she's saying all of that is about patriarchal power. Those are where the boundaries came from. And mm. she wants to look to undermine this patriarchal power. Beth Allison Barr writes, quote, the evangelical fight for inerrancy was inextricably linked with gender from the beginning. 
inerrancy wasn't important by itself until in the late 20th century. It became important because it provided a way to push women out of the pulpit. So, you know, I, I want to say to some of the writers here, you don't have to go there. If you, if you really, if you, I don't always know whether these authors do actually are affirming or denying inerrancy. I don't even know, but they always bring it or they tend to bring it in because <clears throat> it's hard to avoid because they really see all of these doctrines as essentially bids for power. And so once you begin undermining and pulling back the layers of evangelical doctrine, they're claiming they're going to be, be pulling back the curtain on inerrancy, the atonement, hell, uh, LGBTQ issues, things like that. That's in their, I'm quoting their own works here. Yeah. Um, I, 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 as in, in Gushi himself, in his article, they all affirmed these books are not merely offering a superficial critique. You can't just say, oh, we'll just change a few things here and there. They really want evangelicals to re-examine their most foundational theological beliefs. And they're not doing that based on an accurate reading of scripture. They're not they're even attempting to that. They're not saying, well, here's the right interpretation of 1 Corinthians 7. They're not even attempting that. They want you to re-examine your beliefs on the basis of socio-historical analyses. And that's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like under the guise of, hey, let's correct some abuses and some wrongs, uh, or maybe let's make a case for egalitarianism. What they're really doing is dismantling core doctrines of the Christian faith. And it seems like this is what I think the average Christian is having the hardest time responding to. So maybe we could just spend a moment, you know, when, when the average Christian who has believed all their life, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, mm -hmm. and then they're being told, hey, that's just a product of white supremacy. Yeah. How do we respond to that? So one thing is that these authors are— it's not always clear where they land theologically. So a good example would be that uh, Kristen Cobus Dumay, who teaches at Calvin University, which is a reformed Christian college. Uh, she, she wrote the book, Jesus and John Wayne. And a number of Christians have raised these concerns, like, well, if you accept your analysis, then, well, it seems to, you're, in your book, you seem to imply that inerrancy, uh, prohibitions against homosexuality, doctrine of hell, all of these issues are a function of preserving patriarchal power, which you want to dismantle. So they're asking, well, are you affirming these things because you teach for a conservative, purportedly conservative mm. Christian college? So she tends to say, well, I, I'm in the reformed tradition. Well, recently on Twitter, uh, Professor Denny Burke actually flat out asked her, look, do you think homosexuality is a sin? And she didn't respond for a while, but then she wrote a thousand word article that's on our website. I saw that, yeah. Basically, yeah, saying, well, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm in a conversation right now with my denomination, with our college, about these very issues, and I, I'm, 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 I'm part of this relational community, and we're working through these, but she wouldn't answer the question. So a lot of people said, look, that's exactly what we're worried about. Not only that you really, um, that's leading you to a certain place, but you're not even really made being being upfront with where you stand. Where are you going to be in five years, ten years? Because your methodology is going to inexorably lead you to LGBTQ affirmation, mm -hmm. to really a deconstruction of things like the atonement. So mm -hmm. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that these authors are openly denying the atonement, denying inerrancy. Um, for example, Beth Allison Barr would say, "Well, I'm critiquing." Uh, the, like the term inerrancy or how it's been applied 
I'm not necessarily critiquing the doctrine itself. And yet, if you read her book, it gives you that strong impression. A number of reviewers said the same thing I did. Yeah. So anyway, so I want to be careful not to overstate what they're saying. And yet I want to point out this is where they're the trajectory. This is their inevitable conclusion, the implications of these arguments. I mean, mm -hmm. how, like you said, when someone says to you, you know, a, slave owners appealed to the Bible to justify this wicked practice. And if you're saying we're to go from these positive historical facts to some normative claim about how Christians ought to believe, well, then how can you justify inerrancy when it was used for these terrible purposes? Now, that's bad reasoning, but once mm -hmm. you accept it, that's the conclusion. Yeah, we should get rid of inerrancy. Yeah. So that's a, for people in the pews, keep your eyes open. And again, spot the, the logical fallacy. The yeah. abuse of a doctrine does not show the doctrine's false. And if it did, you'd have to just, just reject every doctrine ever because every mm -hmm. doctrine has been abused. Yeah. Well, and one thing I've noticed, too, speaking of logical fallacies, and I can't remember which, it was one of the authors in this evangelical deconstruction project, I was listening to an interview from one of them, and I honestly can't remember which one, but I, I've actually seen this theme repeated several times when it comes to the atonement, is rather than outright deny, say, penal substitutionary atonement, what they'll do is they'll say, we shouldn't be fighting over atonement theories, and in a way, I would agree. Like, we don't need to p to say, hey, pick one over the other. The Bible has lots of different metaphors and language it uses to describe what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Certainly, we can affirm Christus Victor, that, that Jesus died and rose to defeat the power of sin and death. We celebrate yeah. that. That's wonderful. Yeah. We're not picking penal substitutionary atonement and rejecting that one. But that's sort of the implication in that type of a, of a statement. It's like, we, we you know, if you want to go with Christus Victor, and you want to go with penal substitutionary atonement, we shouldn't be fighting over that. And it's really like a bait and switch, because mm -hmm. certainly we're going to affirm everything the Bible has to say about the atonement, but what we're saying is you can't deny what really appears to be the core central way the Bible talks about uh, sure. the atonement, and that's that Jesus took the punishment of our sin upon himself, that he paid our debt. That's, that's uh, you know, a historically Christian view of the atonement, mm -hmm. not denying the other ones, but it's it's almost like it, it's making a way for people to deny that one by saying, well, I, li I just like this one better, and yeah. so we're not going to fight over that. So there's a mm -hmm. bit of a bait and switch there, I think, as well. But you mentioned Denny Burke, and I, I actually pulled a quote from him from Twitter because I thought it was such a succinct thought on this whole thing, and it was in that thread. And, and Denny said this, if your theology is nothing more than a long rumination on who has the power and who doesn't, you're not doing theology. You're doing identity politics. And I think he makes a really great point there. It seems like so much of this deconstruction project has more to do with power dynamics and identity politics than it does an honest exegesis of the scriptures. And I wonder if you wanted to comment on that a little bit. Yeah, one of the uh, responses that I often get on social media to, to my criticism of these books uh, is that, well, you can't ask them to engage in exegesis or in theology because they're not doing that. They're doing history. They're doing sociology. So you can't accuse them of not you're reading the book in the wrong genre. It's not meant to be theology. It's meant to be history. But here's the problem. You can't do that because these books are making normative conclusions about what we ought to believe. The subtitle of Kristen Kobus Dumais book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, is something like how white evangelicals corrupted the faith and fractured the nation. Mm 
but that's it's a subtitle. You can't claim that we corrupted the faith or that white evangelicals corrupted the faith if you don't know what the pure uncorrupted faith is. You're making an mm -hmm. implied statement about what Christianity actually is and ought to be. So right in all, right, or in all these books, there's always this end normative goal. You ought to believe this. You ought to think this way. We ought to get rid of these ideas and replace them with new ones. Well, you can't get those oughts from statements about what is true in history. It is true this happened. It is true that these things are bad, but it's therefore not ought. You can't go from that to saying how we ought to believe uh, because that's theology. So you have to at some point engage what the Bible says about these doctrines. And they, it's not even that they only they don't do it enough or, or convincingly, they don't do it at all for a large part. So most of these books have zero scripture at all. They're, like they say, they are works of sociology or history. My problem is not that they're doing history and sociology, but they're, they're reaching theological conclusions mm -hmm. while only purporting to be stating descriptive facts about history. That's not how reasoning works. If I want to say what we ought to believe as Christians, at some point I have to appeal to what the Bible says, or at least some, some theological reasoning. But again, consistently, you'll have an entire book with nothing about what the Bible says about politics or what the Bible says about gender. And in a few, like in, in Beth Allison's bar books, books, bars book, there's like one section uh, treating one chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, but mm. it's not at all the sustained reflection on what the Bible teaches about gender. It's mainly about, as she admits, history. But again, you can't get theology from pure history. You have to bring in something about biblical interpretation, theology, something. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask you your opinion on this. Not everyone agrees with me on this, but I, I really think that what we're seeing in this modern deconstruction, even this evangelical deconstruction project, and even more broadly how progressives talk about deconstruction, I'm seeing a close link with postmodernism. You mentioned mm -hmm. Derrida, uh, you know, de the people consider him to be the father of deconstruction, which, yes, he meant the term didn't exactly mean what we mean today, but had yeah. to do with text and um, the meaning. Like, uh, my, my understanding is that Derrida didn't think that words could be pinned down to singular meanings. Yep. Um, and, and then, you know, you mentioned Foucault, another postmodern philosopher. And, and I get that it's not exactly the same thing. But I see a connection. I really think it's influenced. I'm curious what you think. Do you see a connection between postmodernism and deconstruction? Yeah, I mean, the, so certainly, uh, semantically, the, the term deconstruction, I think, goes back to Derrida and his, uh, his, his criticism of this idea that, tech, that words have singular meanings, this, what he calls the metaphysics of presence. Um, but I think, actually, what influences modern deconstruction more is actually the work of Michel Foucault, mm -hmm. who's another postmodern philosopher. And, and he was one who sort of uh, urged people to see through these truth claims as bids for power. That's where he, his whole analysis, his method of archaeology, he called it our genealogy, uh, was showing how the powers that be uh, manipulated truth or, or, or they, they shaped the truth or presented the truth in a way that justified their own power. Now, I do see that connection in the methods of these, these uh, scholars and actually uh, Kristen Cobus Dumay is explicit about the influence of postmodernism and critical theory on her own work. So just oh. a few days ago, in fact, she was asked uh, by some random Twitter user, uh, he, he asked her, um, how can he learn more about, quote, analyzing power and cultural systems so that we're not held captive by them? So mm -hmm. her response was this, quote, 
For me, it wasn't one source, but years spent reading social and cultural histories, histories of gender, Foucault, Gramsci, Adorno, Habermas, learning to be curious about how the word, I think the world works, I think she mistyped that. But the point is, she referenced Foucault, of course, the famous postmodern philosopher. Uh, Antonio Gramsci was the father of neo-Marxism, a sort of critical theory, and Adorno was a member of the Frankfurt School, who, again, they coined the term <laughs> critical theory. So it's very, and she'll, so she will say outright, yes, I, this is a work of postmodern deconstruction. Uh, she said that on Twitter again. So, um, but I think I, I, I'm big on this. We don't have to use labels and say, oh, well, this is, this is postmodernism, therefore it's bad. Well, no, I don't care about the labels. Look at what they're actually saying. Critique them yeah. not for the label, but for the ideas they're presenting and their methodologies. And you can just spend, I mean, again, it is fair to say, well, they're engaged in a deconstruction project because they endorsed that, that term when Gushy used it in a positive way. Mm -hmm. But I think if you want to get rid of that term, that's fine. Let's just treat what they're doing, how they're approaching issues of race, class, and gender, and then critique that approach independent of what we call it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in my opinion, one of the reasons it might be helpful for certain Christians to recognize this as a postmodern sort of um, phenomenon is because it has to do with the nature of truth. Uh, when you're when you're talking from two different sides, one side saying, hey, we believe objective truth exists and can be known, and then you have another side that's just marked by hyper-skepticism, and, mm -hmm. and if there is objective truth, we can't know it, nobody can lay claim to, to know it, um, that it might be helpful to, to understand, you know, which, where it's coming from, and just to bring this into a broader conversation even about progressive Christianity, which I think is, um, again, I, I do think is really— uh, undergirded by a lot of postmodern thought and more relativism and things like that. Um, one of the books that has really informed the progressive view of the Bible is Rachel Held Evans' book, Inspired. And right there in the introduction of that book, she said, I, I filter my scripture understanding through these lenses. And she specifically mentioned historical criticism. She mentioned liberation theology, and mm -hmm. she mentioned feminist Bible interpretations. So again, you, you have these admissions where they're saying, look, we, we are using some of these tools and techniques. Um, and I think it's just important for Christians to be aware of the fact that we're not always operating with the same understanding of truth and how truth is defined and how it's known. And um, and so it, it seems to me, can you, I wonder if you could just touch for a moment on something called standpoint epistemology, which mm -hmm. is, uh, my understanding is that's sort of what informs critical theory. Would that be the right way to say that? Or can you tell yeah, us they're, what that they're is? They're related. So standpoint epistemology, related. The, the form that we're seeing it today mainly is that um, that the people with power, hegemonic power, the power to determine you know, what ideas are accepted as true and good, that they um, their ways of viewing the world are sort of natural. They're in the water. They're considered normal and good and, uh, and valuable. But what's been suppressed are... Uh, other minoritized or indigenous knowledges. There are other ways of looking at the world that have been suppressed. And if you are a, therefore, if you're a woman or a person of color or an LGBTQ person who's living in essentially the, the white straight male world, you then have to view the world both through their epistemology, their way of knowing truth, and you have, but you have through your own lived experiences, you have access to a different way of looking at the world. So you have what's called a double consciousness. And because of that, you have a greater way, a greater ability to quote unquote, read the world. That was Paulo Freire's term, that you have a better access to truths, especially truths about your own oppression and how society works. 
So because of that, your standpoint gives you access to the, or better access to truths about oppression. And therefore we ought to defer to your uh, position at your, your, your beliefs and your positions on these issues. Because again, uh, those of us who are a part of majority culture, those of us who are men, we are blinded by our privilege. Mm -hmm. um, now, what I would say here is that I think you're right probably that the progressive Christians have a really wholeheartedly embraced this postmodern skepticism about the nature of truth. I suspect that evangelical deconstructors, you want to call them that, they would not go that far. They would not say, mm -hmm. oh, objective truth is a concept. We don't even agree with that. We, you know, we, we reject the idea of objective truth. Um, I don't think they're there. I think what they have is a skepticism towards um, these narratives of truth. They're saying, yes, there is an objective truth about, say, what the Bible says, but what we've been fed is just the white male interpretation mm. of that truth. And to get the actual truth, we have to then center other voices. And I think that now I'm not opposed to listening to other voices. No, that's great. I don't mind listening to all kinds of people and different, different people, different theologies. But I do think we have to say, well, the text actually does say something and it can be known. And we ought to seek the author's, uh, the author's intention in, when we interpret biblical text. And that should be our, our, our hermeneutic. We look at the text and what, is, what did Paul mean when he wrote that? And actually, there's a really revealing, I think, fascinating part of Beth Allison Barr's book. I don't remember the exact page number, but she points out that she actually says, you know, the, you know, the so white male interpretations, they're, you know, they're influenced by their culture. You know, this, is their, this is their white male interpretation. She says, fascinating, she says, you know, well, am I also influenced by my, you know, female social location? Is that my, yes, I am. But all there are are different cultural interpretations. There's just, there's all of us are influenced by these interpretations and we all have them. But then what she never says is, but one is right. Like, so there is an actual yeah. meaning there. She just kind of stops. And I'm not saying she denies it, but she stops by saying, well, we're all just interpreting with our different cultural lenses. And I want to say, well, yes. And yet the text says something true and objective, and that can be used to critique our various interpretations. So mm, I think that's good. What they're offering is this, they're basically have this skepticism that we can ever escape from our cultural conditioning. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's ultimately, uh, well, it's hopeless. If, we, if nothing we ever yeah. say can escape our cultural conditioning, well, even that statement can't. I'm saying that because I'm a disciple of Derrida and Foucault. So we have to at some point say, no, one, God inspired texts that have objective meaning. And two, that through the Holy Spirit, we can actually understand what they mean. And think about that for a second. No one thinks that there's some culture that rightly reads the scripture as being atheistic. That there's some culture out there that thinks they, they rightly read the Bible according to their lenses and come to the conclusion that Jesus has never existed. That the Bible doesn't say that. It just doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. And no culture will tell you that. So there actually there is at least a minimum of meaning in the text itself that can be extracted by all cultures apart from our these lenses we're wearing.
Mm-hmm. I, I've been reading through First John and reading John Stott's commentary on it, and I pulled something so such a great quote from his commentary this morning. That's along the lines of what you're saying. He he was writing this in as far as how to approach interpreting First John. He said it is important that subjective considerations should not influence us. The criterion of interpretation is what John intended to teach, not whether his, this coincides with our experience of holiness. We must agree, therefore, that. That the plain words of the apostle must be held fast, he's quoting an, another scholar there, and must not be tamed down to suit our convenience. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that just nails it on the head is because we, we so tend to just say, well, what does this mean to me? I mean, really what you're talking about is really just a more sophisticated version of what does this verse mean to you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think we can be we can recognize that, yes, we do have cultural blinders and cultural lenses, but we can work to remove them. And that part of that is listening to other people and saying, well, what, what do you, how do you interpret this text? But then we don't just throw up our hands and say, well, everyone's equally valid. We say, well, what did this text actually mean? So other people's interpretations can shed light on things we may have missed or Mm. were wrong, but they can't determine what the author meant originally, right? That's the big distinction there. Um, That's good. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go into our little uh, bonus section here. For those of you who are unaware of what that is, we do just a little five to 10 minute kind of after party hangout session where we have a private group on Facebook where you get to ask the questions that I ask each guest for our uh, special bonus episode. So if you want to be a part of that, you can go to alisachilders.com. Uh, I'm, no, I'm sorry. Well, you can go there too, but go to patreon.com slash alisachilders and select tier four to be a part of a private Facebook group where we we continue the discussion with a lot of these topics. We actually have a book club in there where we read books we disagree with. We walk through those together. We jump on Zoom once a week and we decipher those things. We discern them. We compare them with scripture. We compare them with what, you know, with reality. And we learn to discern some of these issues in some of these books. So if that sounds interesting to you, go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers and select tier four. Uh, Neil, as we close out this section of our discussion, how can we respond to all of this? How, give us some practical advice. I know this is just so overwhelming for so many Christians who are just trying to catch up with what's happening in culture. What's some good practical advice for how Christians can think through some of these issues? Sure. I think three things. One, we should not reject history and sociology. The criticism that I get is that you will, you just reject history and sociology. You're, you're a neo-fundamentalist. I'm like, no. I'm not, I'm not rejecting those things. We, we don't need to pretend that slavery never happened. We don't need to pretend right. that racism and sexism don't exist. We don't need to pretend that everything that gets labeled complementarianism is therefore biblical and healthy. No, uh, abusive power actually does happen. We can be honest about all that stuff. So I think the first step is to say, okay, look, when they're actually valid criticisms, then accept them, own them and say, yeah, this is, this is true. This is, this is, I can re- recognize that. But then second, we have to insist that all theological claims be grounded transparently in scripture. Someone wants to argue that there are no divinely ordained gender roles or that, you know, we should be LGBTQ affirming or that penal substitutionary atonement is, is not biblical. They, they can argue that, but they have to argue that on the basis of scripture. Yeah. We just can't accept arguments grounded in nothing more than history and sociology. We have to go, we have to go to back to the Bible. And because if you accept that line of reasoning that we can just, you know, accept theology on the basis of history or how it functions, well, there's nothing you can't deconstruct because you'll end up saying things like biblical inerrancy was used to justify slavery, therefore it's false. 
Mm. We can't accept that reasoning. And then I think finally, uh, I would urge people to listen to both sides. I don't think we should shelter ourselves and say, I'm going to ignore these books, ignore these claims. Uh, we should listen to them, hear their arguments. But then the question is always goes back to who is appealing to scripture? Are they interpreting it accurately and consistently? And third thing is a big thing that's often missed. What are the logical implications of the claims they're making? People often will say, well, here's their claims they're making. Yeah, but what are the downstream entailments of those claims? So, for example, if they say something like, you know, I believe that all systems of oppression need to be dismantled. Okay, well, then that sounds good. But what do they count as oppression? Okay, racism, sexism. Oh, the gender binary. Okay, wait a minute. I have to rethink when they say oppression, what do they, how do they define that term? And, and so I think in this, you know, it's so with be careful about the implications and then, you know, talk to your pastor. They are biblically called to shepherd their congregation and they should hopefully be able to recognize and correct error when they see it. So do this in a conversation with, do this with the, your pastors and your church community supporting you and guiding you. Again, that's their job. I know as Americans, we're like, no, I'm a, you know, the captain of my own soul. I'll do things on my own. But no, we're a community and you're, God's appointed people to care for your souls. And so ask them questions about the books you're reading. That's good. Well, I want to thank my guest, Neil Shenvey, for joining me for this discussion. We are actually going to have Neil on uh, next time as well. We are going to tackle the topic of Christian nationalism. So you don't want to miss that. That's coming up uh, next time. If you are listening on audio platforms like Google and Spotify, iTunes, it helps us out so much if you go leave a five-star review. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribing, clicking that bell icon helps to uh, 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 let you know every time we release a new video. If you saw this post shared on social media, of course, it always helps to leave a like and a comment. Uh, just gets that uh, put into the news feeds of more people to get the word out. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with people. If you think it's clarifying for some of your friends who might be walking through some of this stuff and trying to uh, navigate their way through these cultural waters, definitely send this via email or on social media. And we hope that this has been helpful to you. So thanks so much for watching and we will see you next time. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.